Welcome to Nerds at Church, a podcast about nerdery and the Bible. I'm Pastor Kay, and I use pronouns like she and her. And I'm Pastor Emily, and my pronouns are they, them, theirs. In this episode, we'll discuss the 15th Sunday after Pentecost, also known as Lectionary 23 or Proper 18, which this year falls on September 10th. We have one content notification for this episode, and that is that we talk about abuse a lot in all its forms during the deep dive. It is, in fact, the deep dive, basically. So feel free to skip to the readings if you need to. Also, make sure you stick around for a super special, super awesome surprise at the beginning of our Let's Make a Muppets musical section for this episode. Our Patreon listeners will probably know what's coming, but just in case they don't. And for all of you who are not yet Patreon subscribers, make sure you stick around and check it out. Check out the episode description for links to the Bible passages and other references we make in this episode. For our deep dive today, we are in an unofficial series about harm, kind of. Yeah. It, yeah. It kind of started with Bishop Brenda Boss and the Office of the Keys and what it means to bind or loose, retain or not retain someone's sins. And then last week into vengeance. And this week we've got abuse and how to handle and respond to accusations of abuse. Um, we'll continue next week with forgiveness with us super awesome special guest. But for now, we wanted to actually address some of the bigger and more organizational things. As a disclaimer, we are not lawyers. None of this is legal advice. We are coming at this from a faith perspective, and we welcome your feedback if you have insights into this, whether it's from your own experiences of doing this or if you just... <laughs> think really deeply and have thought about this. It's really tricky, especially because what is called our criminal justice system is not just and is not faithful to principles of restorative or transformative justice or community care. And so we're trying our best to help give space for both reality and for acting the way we are called to act as people of faith. So yeah, yeah. I would say that we would both encourage you to, if there is an accusation of abuse in your sphere, please call a lawyer. Actual legal advice is good. However, what we're offering today is supposed to be before that step, before the accusation happens. What can you do to create a good space for people to exist? And a few emergency tips, basically. So first, let's talk about preventing abuse in the first place, which is not the subject of the steep dive, but may be handy for you in real life. Mm -hmm. We've got some links to some sources that you may find helpful. Among them, there is a company called Church Mutual, which offers insurance to churches and houses of worship. And they have some mm -hmm. suggestions on sexual abuse prevention and also volunteer safety and management resources that may be helpful for you. Mm -hmm. Another option is the Safe Church Trainings. The resource that I could find and that we're linking to is done by the Episcopal Church, but there are a lot of churches that do safe church trainings. And I think Episcopal churches actually require it of all clergy, at least, to have done it. Yeah, I believe in so. In order to serve. Also, we have some 
resources from the CDC on preventing child abuse at program activities. And these are also available in Spanish. And I think they were the only resources that were immediately offered in Spanish as well as mm -hmm. English that I found. Some of the resources in abolitionist circles and what to do as alternatives to policing also were in multiple languages, including Spanish. Sure. And then also we have some guidelines from the New York government, the New York state government, to take on best practices in an organization for having a abuse-free environment in general, just mm -hmm. general guidelines for your organization and community. And I will say one thing that I have found to be supremely helpful as a preventative measure is to make sure that you are doing background checks for anyone who is volunteering in general, but sure. especially if they have any interaction with kids. Keeping in mind that background checks can bring up stuff that might need explanation and being open to that, but it can sure. also filter out people who are really trying to volunteer to do harm. Yeah. So first, so after that, after preventing harm, preventing abuse, we know that it is impossible to catch everything. And so it's important to understand what happens if there is abuse. And one of the things that's important to be able to understand what the process is, is to understand the legal categories of abuse. So any type of abuse of a minor is child abuse. There's also abuse of vulnerable adults. So that includes those who are elderly and anyone who is disabled physically, mentally. And when it comes to like mandatory reporting, those are the two main categories of mandatory reporting of abuse. Yes. And then also you have the abuse of adults who do not fall into one of those vulnerable categories. And when we say the word abuse, we are including, for example, physical abuse, mental abuse, sexual abuse, financial abuse, and all of these are genuinely abuse. If someone in your life is financially abusing you, that is not less important or less necessary to get help for than any other type of abuse. If it is mental mm -hmm. abuse, that is not less important or less necessary for help. You deserve help. You deserve to live in a healthy environment with healthy relationships. Right. Abuse is abuse. And also yeah. neglect counts in categories of abuse. Yes, absolutely. And the reason why we're sorting abuse into the categories of who is being abused is that the requirements for abuse to be addressed by the legal system, those requirements are usually less strict when it's a child or a vulnerable adult who is being abused. The ability for the legal system to address that situation is much stronger in the case of children and vulnerable adults in mm -hmm. most states in the United States. We are definitely not offering any kind of advice for people outside of the United States because that is not where we have any experience. Also, we would just like to take a moment to acknowledge the fact that abuse that is between adults and not perpetrated by a cis man against a cis woman, anything else is still going to be more difficult and complicated to address in many places around the country. And mm -hmm. we wish that wasn't the case, but it is. Yep. So what are best practices for responding to abuse or abuse allegations? Well, step number one is absolutely center the victim, the survivor, not the alleged abuser in all cases, always mm -hmm. 100% full stop. If there's one single piece of advice we can offer, <laughs> it's that one. 
Yes. And if you think that there may be potential abuse going on, especially if you are a clergy or another type of mandated reporter, and you are having a conversation with someone who you are worried might be being abused, the responsible thing to do there is to stop the conversation and inform the person what will require you to report, what are the requirements for you to report in your state. This varies Mm -hmm. by state. And so if you are in a situation of some kind of authority around children, vulnerable adults, other adults, it is the responsible choice on your part to know whether or not you are a mandated reporter and to know under what circumstances you have to report and just be able to rattle that off. Yeah, because it can be heartbreaking to have the response to that be that the person stops talking, but there is also harm that comes from not having disclosed that and then having to report when they don't want that. Now, there are also going to be situations where the person in question can't make a decision of their own based on that information. If you're talking to a Mm three-year-old, if you're talking to someone who is not mentally well, there, there are going to be different lines for that. But if they are able to make their own decisions about their life, please disclose. Mm -hmm. Part of what abuse does is it takes away agency. And so as we were thinking and planning what to say, like part of it is maintaining the person's agency. Absolutely. Is super important because you have the potential to be one of the few people that actually prioritizes their agency, even, even when it's, even when it's allowing them to choose not to be helped. Yes. And going along with this, if you are a mandatory reporter and you tell them and then they still continue to disclose, or if it's another situation, the method of centering the victim or the survivor is believe them and act Mm -hmm. accordingly. It is possible there's like that super teeny tiny statistic that it is not true. Believe them and act accordingly. And if it is disproven later, you will still have responded with great care. Yes. And that is important. And other people who might be going through abuse will know that about you. Mm -hmm. And if you think you can navigate the space of like not taking any sides or any of that, that is a way to prove yourself to be untrustworthy to people who are being abused. So we'll be going through a few of those in this episode. Yeah. And then the first step is to check and create safety for the victim or survivor. And this is done with them, right? Part of centering is doing everything with them, with their consent, with their direction, to the extent that it is possible. If they say, I want this and I don't want to be involved, that's that's their prerogative. But when it comes to making sure they are safe, they get to decide. So make sure that if they are not physically safe, they have a way to get physically safe. Make sure they have support. Make sure to the best of your abilities, they are emotionally and mentally and spiritually safe as well. If this is a situation that is like where they are living is the unsafe place, it's hard to navigate that space with them, but you still need to let them take the lead on if they are going back or not. Because, again, their agency matters in this and whether or not they have consent to do the thing. So you can suggest options and help make those options happen if they choose one. But you cannot. But don't dictate to them what is going to happen. And then in the process of addressing the abuse, 
always make sure that the victim or survivor has an advocate and or support person with them if they want it. Whenever there is a meeting, make sure they have access to professional support, therapy, lawyers, those sorts of things. It is really important to give them the support that they need and not just like expect them to do everything by themselves or on their own or in isolation. Especially interviews, paperwork, and official steps. Yep. And there are lots of resource centers that can be really helpful, especially for situations of domestic violence and domestic abuse, but also frequently help with a lot of different forms of abuse. However, as much as I hate to say this, you will also have to prepare yourself for various other people in that person's life saying, actually, I don't want to get involved, Mm -hmm. which sucks, but it is an option of what might happen. And if that happens, you'll need to find someone else. Yes. Yep. Also, do not, do not, under any circumstances, danger, Will Robinson, uh, (laughs) do not have meetings with both the victim and the perpetrator, alleged perpetrator, however you want to phrase that, in the same room at the same time. That is a bad plan. Yeah. For a pop culture reference, there is an episode of Broadchurch in the first season, which is not exactly this, but basically they end up putting the alleged perpetrator's wife in the room with him in order for her to be able to ask questions because she is, you know, horrified like one would be. And this leads to violence, which... Spoilers for Broadchurch, the first season, if you haven't seen it yet, the English version with David Tennant, that was part of what got the eventual trial thrown out. Mm. So it can have serious consequences. Yeah. If you're extra good, emotional support animals can be super helpful. Certainly if the person has their own emotional support animal, it should be welcomed at any anything that they sure. are doing involving this. But there are also, I heard about a couple courts that have started having a dog available for when victims are testifying or that sort of a thing, especially when it's connected to abuse. Not everybody's an animal person. This doesn't work for everybody. But like, if you have the right. option, definitely offer that. That can be a huge help. Yeah. I will, however, point out that emotional animal, emotional support animal training is real and genuine and super helpful. And an animal that hasn't been trained for that may not be up for it, especially say an animal who has been through abuse itself. So yeah, don't just throw it on any dog that happens to be around. It's true. It's true. Trained professional animals. Yes. Working animals. Yeah. Yeah. And then as we've mentioned And just to reiterate, the highest priority is on the needs of the victim or survivor for their healing, for harm reduction, and for repair of the harm that was caused. This is not the same thing as following their direction no matter what, including causing harm to another or vengeance. Like you can check out our vengeance episode if you're not sure where justice versus vengeance falls, (laughs) right? This is looking at their needs, not necessarily their wants or their angry reactions and desires for vengeance because those are real and they come from a place of hurt and harm and continuing cycles of harm is not going to help the situation. However, one of the things you can listen to them about is what do they want to be called? Are they calling themselves a survivor? Are they calling themselves a victim? That is a choice they get to make. That is why we keep using both words. Mm -hmm. And secondary to the needs of the victim or survivor are the needs of the community where the harm has happened. The needs of the community are on the board of things to consider, but they are not 
ever going to come before the needs of the person who's been through the abuse. Mm-hmm. And following that, after that, sometimes by, let's say, a very good distance even, are the needs of the one causing harm. We are not ignoring the needs of the one causing harm because, ideally speaking, preventing them from causing harm again would be great. And sometimes that involves, say, you know, therapy and various other things and Mm -hmm. access to community. But it doesn't mean that they have to have access to your community. And it absolutely does not mean that they need to have access to the victim or survivor. Yep. And that's a space where in considering all of these things. It is important because people who cause harm frequently have also been victims of harm themselves, especially if there's situations of kids causing harm to other kids. And so helping make sure that that, like it's possible that one area of harm could lead to discovery of more. And you have to be ready for that because harm is not isolated basically ever yeah and so having that space of connection and space to relate to others is important and so remembering that we've said that the needs of the community come in second after the needs of the victim or survivor another thing to keep in mind is that you want to have good communication with your community throughout mm-hmm. by community we mean the organization the people who the organization serves etc <sighs> Honestly, I'm going to say that this is a step you probably don't want to take without having talked to a lawyer first. Yeah. Please consult professionals before you do the communication to your community. But communicating with the community is important. Once is appropriate. You don't need to blab everything constantly. And please, again, if there is one thing to take away from this episode, remember to maintain the privacy of the individuals involved and especially especially the privacy of any minors involved. Mm -hmm. Really, the guideline I've been given regarding this is that the only people who should know the names of any minors involved are the people who are legally required to. Yeah. Yep. And there are ways to share harm that has happened without sharing the names of or identities of victims and survivors. Yeah. And it's important to do that. When we say good communication with the community throughout We are talking about not hiding it, not keeping secrets from the community, because that's how abuse is able to then continue to happen, because people feel isolated and don't know about other people's situations. So if people think that they're the only one it's happened to, they're less likely to report. But if they start to realize that other people are experiencing it too, they're more likely to report and more likely to get the support that they need. And in that vein, don't make victims or survivors sign NDAs. NDAs are non-disclosure agreements. Those are evil when you make someone with less power sign them. It's a bit of a different situation when it's the person perpetrating the abuse because that has to do with the safety and protection usually of the victim or survivor. But NDAs perpetuate secret keeping and are likely to create cultures where someone is able to continue abusing others. Yeah. And that's bad. Yeah. If you are looking for resources that are not solely centered on preventing abuse, but also include reporting and responding to abuse, my synod of the ELCA, the Southwestern Minnesota Synod, has resources on their website that we will link to in the episode description for preventing, reporting, and responding to abuse allegations. And those are pretty comprehensive. I've looked at those before. Mm -hmm. And within all of this, we're talking to you, 
our dear listeners, with an assumption that you might be in a position in an organization, whether it's a church or where you work, if it's not a church or wherever, that you might actually be responsible for handling abuse allegations. It is important though, or that you're just like interested in knowing what processes are helpful or those sorts of things. If you are not the victim or survivor, and if you are not the one being accused, it's really important for you to understand what's your lane and what's not. So figuring out what the victim wants and needs, not necessarily what you want to do in response to what was done to the victim, but also understanding if there is like someone that should be the go-to person in the organization that's not you. That's important to know. You can still be a support to the victim or survivor while also helping them navigate. You can be that support person that we said that it's important for them to have. Yeah. But also implicit bias is really influential and is really harmful. And it is especially harmful when it comes to things like abuse. So when something happens, it's important to consider the race, class, disability, gender, and sexual orientation of the people involved and how that might impact the situation. It is more likely that people of color are going to be accused of abuse, especially verbal abuse, for being aggressive or bullying when they're not. And that can also be the case for someone who's autistic, maybe. There's a lot of different ways that our implicit bias can create situations of accusations of harm. And it's important to know that before you, no matter what bandwagon you're jumping on. And you can support someone who's been harmed without just running a really harmful campaign against someone that's more based on implicit bias than actual fact. Yeah. Speaking of things that it is not your lane to do, really under any (laughs) circumstances in this case, it is not your place to threaten violence against the person who allegedly perpetrated this abuse. Ever, really. Especially and including not if you are claiming to want to do this violence on behalf of the victim or survivor. Mm-hmm. That might make you feel better in the moment. It's not going to help the situation at large because what it's probably going to do in the long run is it's going to make it less likely that the victim survivor is going to come to you for help ever mm-hmm. again. And possibly that other people who hear about this threat of yours will ever come to you for help. Because what this does is that you are volunteering to increase the amount of violence, chaos, and harm in the system. And I guarantee that a person who has already been going through abuse does not want that. Increasing the violence, harm, and abuse is not what anyone is going for. Mm-hmm. So, yep. although goodness knows, I certainly understand the impulse. I can't claim otherwise on that one. <laughs> but <laughs> don't do it. Yep. This is, again, see our first comment of the needs of the victim or survivor come first. Yes. And so... We struggled a little bit with this deep dive because, as we mentioned, the criminal justice system is not just. We did a whole deep dive on that last year with Sally Frank that we'll link to for you to like learn more about what exactly we're talking about. And yeah. so in that space, and particularly like in a space of working towards prison abolition, which we talked about with Reverend Al Dowd as well in our first season, so we can link to that too. Yeah. There are community-based 
interventions and processes that avoid the criminal justice system and the legal system. To be clear, if the victim wants to pursue legal routes, they get to, right? One of the ways that abuse is perpetuated is through avoiding courts, avoiding any sort of legal documentation, any of that. We see this mostly on college campuses and sexual assault, that it gets handled within the college campus and not reported to the police. And so it just keeps happening and the problem is not addressed. So recognizing that there are situations in which people are going to want to go to the police and that is going to be the thing that you do. There's also ways to address abuse that really focus on the victim and the community and healing. And so one of the examples is from Heyara Mataora, which is a Maori organization, and we'll link to that example of community-based intervention. So it's taking action that first tries to respond to and end or prevent interpersonal violence. So that's intervening in situations. A great example of this is actually from the show Escaping Polygamy. Escaping Polygamy is there's a core group of people who have gotten out of cults polygamous cults, and then are trying to help other people escape when they reach out and want to escape. They don't doubt the people. Like, if somebody reaches out and wants to escape, they help them escape. They intervene to get the person to safety because that is the first step. And it's people who have been in that situation who are doing that. So they have a greater awareness of what it is like to grow up in a polygamous cult, that sort of a thing. Also, a community-based intervention uses community resources rather than the criminal system or social services so that the community is part of the healing and part of addressing the harm. It shifts the responsibility, it shifts the blame, it shifts the framing from these two parties to this is a concern of the community because abuse is a concern of the community. It is the responsibility of communities to address it and to stop it. And going along with that, it uses the community. It uses friends, coworkers, neighbors, community members, particular people who are designated to help with this in order to address the harm that's caused. And it can work with the person or people doing the harm because, as you mentioned, they need help too. Sometimes the help they need is to recognize that they are causing harm. Sometimes the help they need is to find ways to stop doing the harm and find alternatives. And a lot of the interventions are focusing on abuse from an interpersonal perspective. So this person caused harm to this person. How do we address it? And those are the important first steps, but it also then needs to shift to here is the context that the community created in which this abuse was able to take place. And that's why we started with how do you prevent abuse? Because ultimately that is the way to best stop abuse is by preventing it, not by responding to it. Transformative justice and restorative justice have things like circle processes where victims or survivors are able to put whoever they need in the circle and the person who caused the harm. This is, again, not done without the consent of the victim or survivor. The person who caused the harm is not allowed to cry because that tends to be a trigger that shuts down the process. But then the victim 
or survivor is able to say whatever they need to say. And that creates spaces for people to figure out how to repair the damage that has happened. The damage has happened to the person, to the survivor or the victim. It has happened to the community. The criminal justice system punishes people who do bad is how it done. So the repair that supposedly happens in a punitive system like the criminal justice system is paying the government or being incarcerated for the government. Yeah. And that doesn't address the actual harm that is committed and the communities that need that harm. And so that's why we're including some of the resources from abolitionist groups because what they really focus on is the community and the individuals and shifting to prevent harm. And we're not explicitly talking a lot about how to change the system because so much of organizations is individualized. And so it's hard to know how to change specific organizations. But we do include a couple of the key principles, and that is to center the needs of the victim or survivor and Mm -hmm to not keep secret, especially within the church. There are so many churches that have something traumatic happen, have abuse happen, and then don't talk about it. And so particular enclaves within the community know what happened and others don't. And so then when the fallout of the person leaving or something like that happens, there's not an understanding of why. And so then other stories start to be put in and it causes other problems. The only way to really work to repair harm is by acknowledging first that it happened. And the Catholic Church got in trouble with this, the Boy Scouts got, like, the big organizations that are getting in trouble for this. And even, like, within every church denomination, it is not just the Catholics, though I think they have probably a higher incident of it than some of the other denominations. Well, we're aware of more. that That we're aware of. And there's some statistics that back that up. But just moving the person to a new situation is not okay. When someone abuses another, they have lost the privilege of that power. They are not using their power responsibly, and so they should not have that power anymore. Yeah. Period. It is not okay to put them in another position where they still have power. Like, if they want to be in that position again, they have to work to repair the harm and to acknowledge the harm that they committed and to make plans for not doing it ever again. And then maybe, maybe we might consider it. And too often the answer, especially when it's clergy misconduct, is to just move the clergy to another place. So The other kind of main thing that we wanted to address when it comes to abuse is The very real question for many of should I call Child Protective Services or Child and Family Services? It varies a little bit about what it's called in each state, but CPS tends to be what we talk about it as, I guess. Yeah. So this is tricky because CPS is complicated. Yeah. If you are asking yourself the question, should I call CPS? Very frequently, the answer might be yes right? The the fact that you're thinking about it and considering it, it is not a thing to consider lightly. And so if you're considering it, there's a good chance that the situation is bad. And if you do call Child Protective Services, part of what happens is that then there's a paper trail. There's some evidence for what happened. Especially if something escalates. 
Yes. And that's part of why we say don't keep secrets and don't make survivors and victims sign NDAs is because there needs to be a record. Otherwise, that person can continue to perpetrate harm in organizations. Same goes for an adult in particular with kids. Practically speaking, CPS and other organizations like it are usually overworked to such an extent that it is hard for that they don't always have time to unnecessarily harass safe families. This is, of course, coming with a very big caveat, which is that racism and other axes of bigotry, including classism and ableism, are just as much at work within CPS as they are elsewhere. And CPS workers are also just as human and just as likely to develop grudges and to have implicit biases as anyone else. So if the adults caring for the children involved are white and straight, and you think that you maybe should call CPS, that is the most likely situation to be like, okay, if they aren't, it's a more complicated decision for you to make because you have to weigh what will cause the most harm, what has the most likely potential to do good, what is the most supportive of the victim or survivor, those sorts of situations. It's really hard. Yeah. Also, this varies between places, but very often if you're asking yourself, should you call the CPS, one of your options is to call CPS and ask them hypothetically. If this mm-hmm. was a situation, should I talk to you guys? Now, if you do that, they are 1000% guaranteed to, to try to get you to give them the information and you will need to keep your own counsel about that. But mm-hmm. generally speaking, you are allowed to ask, theoretically speaking, if this happened, not that I'm saying that it is happening, mm-hmm. should I tell you guys about this? That's a reasonable question to ask. Yeah. And I will also as a caveat, say, when it comes to Native communities and Native children, oh yeah, that's a whole different ballgame. Extra care that needs to be taken. Absolutely. Because the Indian Child Welfare Act is a good thing, no matter what people try to legislate it to be. But frequently, organizations like CPS come in and remove children, not only from their families, but from their whole community and their culture. And this is actually an act of genocide. So, extra special caution if that is the situation. And there are other routes. Frequently tribes have processes and community centers and ways to figure out what to what to best do that is culturally appropriate to address yeah. situation. On the other side of the situation, what do you do if CPS shows up on your doorstep? I'm just going to say from the beginning that I am, of course, assuming that you are a delightful and lovely person (laughs) and a perfect parent in all possible ways, but accusations happen. And Mm -hmm. so if CPS shows up on your doorstep, what do you do? Well, you want to take the situation seriously from the get-go and always be polite. Maintaining politeness is huge during this conversation while they are on your doorstep and or in your home not because it's legally required but because that's the impression people are yeah it's not fair yeah yeah it's not fair but staying polite will have an impact Mm -hmm. also if at all possible please record the encounter Uh, on your phone is a perfectly good option for that but Mm -hmm. having a recording of the encounter will help 
You are allowed to ask for details of what you're being accused of, not just the category of what they're responding to. Oh, we're here because of abuse. We're here because of neglect. No, you're allowed to ask for more specific details of what you're being accused of. And at that point, once you have that information, you are strongly advised to ask for an attorney. You will probably want to find your own attorney who actually knows what they're doing regarding CPS rather than going with whoever's available that day that CPS Mm -hmm. happens to call. But you do want to make it clear that you're not speaking to them without legal help. And then you do not say anything else. Invoke your right to remain silent and then Mm -hmm. keep your silence. Don't say anything else. If there is one piece of advice that literally everyone I read said over and over again, don't say anything you don't absolutely have to. Mm-hmm. You are allowed to insist on a warrant for them to enter or even look into your home. And if they are at your door, they may already have one, but they must show it to you if you ask for it. And if they hand you a piece of paper at the stage, it may not actually be a warrant that requires that you let them into your home. So read it before mm-hmm. doing anything else. Also make sure it's I- a warrant from the right source. Like I know, especially for immigration situations, ICE does not have the authority to create warrants for the most part. And so they'll frequently like create their own warrant and just hope that you don't notice that it's not an actual judge who signed the warrant. You do want to keep copies of any and all paperwork that you are given during this encounter to share with your eventual attorney. Mm -hmm. Take Uh, pictures of it if nothing else. They give it to you, take a picture and keep it. If they are going to attempt to remove your kids from the home, this paperwork should include instructions on how to get them back. Fairly clear ones, in fact, and you are allowed to ask for clarification. And if they are going to attempt to remove your kids from the home and you have family nearby who could care for your kids for a few days, calmly inform the caseworker of this because they love kinship placements because they just make everything easier for CPS, frankly. And also that will allow your kids to have some semblance of normalcy for the next few days Mm -hmm. for what's going to be a truly unpleasant experience for everyone involved. If your kids have medical conditions, such as diabetes, allergies, any and all other medical stuff, by all means, try to calmly and patiently and politely inform the caseworker of those facts. And if you can, provide paper documentation from medical sources, say your doctor's office, to the caseworker about this. However, if the caseworker isn't listening, which does sometimes happen, you can also call both the CPS main phone line and the law enforcement non-emergency line in your area to try to get that information to the people who are caring for your children as fast as possible. Now, if they do land in a kinship placement, this is going to be less of an issue. But if they're Mm -hmm. not, you want to get that information to the people necessary as fast as you can. Also, if your children are being removed, tell them that you love them. Yeah. Like, you decide what all you tell them, but it is important for your kids to know that you love them. And that you're going to try to figure this out. You can't guarantee them that everything will be fine, but you can tell them that you're going to try and figure this out. And your ability to stay somewhat calm and to continue to be a source of love for them will be very important for their own well-being. Absolutely. 
And then finally, if the child or children are not removed, or for that matter, the moment that they are returned to your care, have them see a doctor and have the doctor check for signs of any kind of abuse right away and then get documentation of that visit. Again, preferably paper documentation. I know that we love to say that we live in a paperless society. That is not really the case. When in doubt, paper copies are helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Again, this is right. Even this, the CPS, there's there's like taking care of yourself and protecting yourself in a legal sense. But the making sure you are caring for your kids, making sure your kids get documentation from a doctor about any sort of abuse stuff, making sure your kids know that you love them. That is part of centering the victim or survivor because if cps is showing up their assumption is that the kid or kids would be victims or survivors and so that's part of what you can do too is like if you have done nothing wrong help them know that you love them and you care about them no matter what right and also one of the unfortunate possibilities if cps is on your doorstep and you have not abused your children is that someone else has and so allowing cps Mm -hmm. to investigate may help your children in the long run and keeping that in mind might also help you stay calm and polite. Yep. And there are not a lot of examples of when this has been done well. There are a lot of documentaries out. We do not live in a culture that is good at addressing abuse. No. So within that, especially these days, we've had a lot of documentaries come out, whether it's the Hillsong documentary, the documentary about Harvey Weinstein, all sorts of different documentaries about abuse that don't necessarily show them doing it well or don't show them acknowledging power dynamics, which is my biggest critique of the Hillsong documentary that I watched and and getting at like larger cultures and systems. They don't always do that, but it is a place to engage if you're doing a safe church training or something and you want to talk about actual examples with folks, you can watch some of these documentaries and then say, okay, what's missing? What would we do differently? And that's actually like a great resource because it's a case study that's right in front of you and done in a fairly engaging way because that's how they get people to watch. Yeah. Also, the thing I always come back to personally when thinking about examples of how this has worked in pop culture is the Aaron Sorkin TV show that he did before West Wing, which was called Sports Night back in the 90s. And there is a character arc in season one of the show, which involves an adult woman who off screen experiences a incident of sexual abuse. And then the arc covers how she emotionally responds in the next days and weeks, and also how her co-workers respond and how the organization as a whole responds that she works for, because she goes through this experience as part of her workday. And in the end, she swears out a warrant for the perpetrator's arrest, and we don't know what happens after that. But in this character arc, that people respond both well and badly, but all of them are responding out of an attempt at goodwill. Like they're trying, mm. but they don't necessarily know what they're doing. And the bad responses are called out pretty well, I have to say, especially for the 90s. Like <laughs> they did a good job with this, I think, on the whole. And there are people who don't go the right way, but it's because they want to help. And uh, Part of my reason for not having a lot of examples for this being handled in pop culture is that if I'm going to watch a show or a movie, I really want someone I can root for. And so I don't watch a lot of the really depressing stuff that's out there because (laughs) I just do not have it within me to bring myself to care because it reminds me too much of real life. Uh, But this was a case where everybody cares. And 
that helps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Susanna was the one who was watching Escaping Polygamy. And we have a thing called Fun Times at the Island, which is basically when Susanna watches these sorts of documentaries, a lot of them, which is a little bit of exposure therapy, I think, for some people, where it is something traumatic or harmful that maybe they've experienced, maybe they haven't, but when you can do it and turn it off, there's exposure therapy because you can turn it off. But I, the other show that I think did, this one is tricky for me. I used to love Seventh Heaven, and then allegations came out about the dad in Seventh Heaven, the actor who played the dad in Seventh Heaven, and yeah. those are harmful. But I do remember them tackling so many different tough topics, yeah. including abuse, and doing it pretty well. Yeah, absolutely. I don't remember what the episode yeah. was called, but there was one where a single mother had a boyfriend, and the dog and her son did not trust the boyfriend, and she was freaked out about that. And the dad pastor character winds up uncovering the fact that he is in the process of isolating her in order to abuse. Mm-hmm. And they did that very well. Again, especially for the 90s. What was it about the 90s that I... Anyway. Yeah. So we don't recommend that show, but if you remember that show... Yeah. Yeah. As we jump into the readings for this episode, our first reading is from Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 7 through 11. The prophet considers the choice between warning the wicked away from their ways and succeeding, but being killed for it, or not warning them and living, but they continue doing evil. So one of the themes in this passage is the idea of turning back from evil or harm. And I think my favorite example of this is probably Boromir. And that's like Boromir in The Lord of the Rings, right, tries to steal the ring from Frodo. And yet he realizes towards the end of his life that he was doing evil and he repents and then takes action to the best of his ability to repair the harm by protect by using literally the rest of his life, which is short because he gets killed, to protect the hobbits and let them escape from, yeah, well, do his best to get the hobbits, to let the hobbits escape and to save their lives. So, yeah, one does not simply walk into Mordor, but one can simply (laughs) turn back from evil. And then diving into the verses in verse seven, we read, so you mortal, I have made a sentinel for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. And this reminded me of a couple different Sentinels, but particularly Sentinels of the Multiverse is a game that my best friend's husband introduced me to. And the Sentinels are like basically some version of superhero protecting Earth, like protecting everybody from evil. And so they are both alike. Mm -hmm war like a first level they're like a first level of defense or warning about harm and i like that interpretation of sentinels also i'd like to point out to our dear listeners that unintentionally we actually did completely different verses because i had already written mine down but i hadn't put them in the document when Kay did hers and (laughs) we didn't duplicate in this one at all i'm sure the holy spirit was involved somehow And then in verse 8, we read, If I say to the wicked, O wicked ones, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from their ways, the wicked shall die in their iniquity, but their blood I will require at your hand. Okay, so that last phrase, but their blood I will require at your hand, on the one hand, that's implying that, yeah, if you don't 
tell them to turn from their wickedness, you're going to die. But also there's a sort of secondary implication there of the reason you're going to die is because you're going to be trying to kill them. <laughs> and thus the their blood at your hand thing. And so this mm -hmm. has some interesting implications of what God would have expected from Jonah if he had succeeded in running away to Tarshish and not mm -hmm. warning the Ninevites in time to repent of their wickedness. I mean, yes, I realize that the story of Jonah is not necessarily a historical account, but I do have to wonder, is this what Jonah was sad about missing out on when he was sulking under his plant in chapter four of his book? <laughs> because he's clearly sad about something thing and is it like what was he looking forward to you know murder because that's I, a little concerning i think he was he was looking forward yeah. to murder under the guise of it being justice and this is where like last yes. week's yeah. episode on justice versus vengeance or like just thinking about like the ways we have distanced ourselves so i think we talked about this in our episode where we talked about like nuclear disarmament and disarmament sure. right like that the more distanced we are from killing people the easier it is and that can shift easily to jonah's like i can rejoice in it yeah yeah which he's not the only one to have done that because there are a lot of people in this country and abroad who rejoice when tragedy hits or when someone is killed both in this country and yeah. abroad and then in verse nine we read but if you warn the wicked to turn from their ways, and they do not turn from their ways, the wicked shall die in their iniquity, but you will have saved your life. And this is that obligation to speak up. These readings go so well with our deep dive of like when we are obligated to talk to someone and to address harm that is being caused. But in this situation, I was like, it's like the Lorax who speaks for the trees. Like you are... The Lorax was morally obligated to speak up for the trees because he recognized the harm that was being done. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then in verse 10, we read, Now you, mortal, say to the house of Israel, Thus you have said, Our transgressions and our sin weigh upon us, and we waste away because of them. How then can we live? Okay, so one of the best episodes of Star Trek, the original series, yes, the one from the 1960s, <laughs> is called The Conscience of a King. And I will just throw in on a side note, this episode also includes one of my favorite tropes from classic science fiction, which is science fiction still trying to establish itself as a reputable and serious genre and doing so by occasionally having episodes and stories that contain a ton of Shakespeare quotations and or tropes <laughs> by, you know, establishing themselves as a, a vehicle for classical storytelling. And mm. this is totally that episode, but also <laughs> they do it really well. So like points to that. And in this episode, Captain Kirk and one other crew member who, of course, we never see again from the ship happen to also be the only two people who are still alive who would recognize a man who was guilty of a massacre decades beforehand. When Kirk saw him committing this massacre he was only 13 years old and now he's the captain of a starship in his like mid 40s or something so this is a long time later and he's saying to himself like this guy looks a lot like that dude and also sounds a lot like him but also it's been 30 years and we're talking about like a murder charge so maybe i should take this kind of seriously right this is actually one of those episodes where captain kirk is trying to be a responsible human being <laughs> which what? does not happen as often as some people tend to think and so as the investigation 
investigation into whether or not the head of this group of traveling actors who happened to be putting on a bunch of Shakespeare plays, just, you know, accidentally, while they're investigating whether or not that guy is also the man who was guilty of the massacre, there is an excellent conversation into the ethics of what duties do the people involved have to one another and to society. And that that is a really excellent conversation. And I very much appreciate this episode to this day. Hmm, nice. Our second reading for this episode is Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. Paul considers what it means to live with love for one another, and that love fulfills all of God's law. So one of the themes in this passage is the idea of wearing or acting in love. Not like in love, lovey-dovey kind of thing, but like acting with love kind of thing. And my favorite example of like wearing love as your armor or as like anything is Jane in Firefly in the episode when he receives a package. This is the episode where the one guy from the war, war buddy tries to like pretend to be dead. Yeah, but I think that's episode like two or something. It's pretty it's, early. It's a little bit. It's further on than that. Okay. But I mean, it's like half a season, so it's not very far. But Jane gets a package from his mom who sent him a hat that she made. And it's adorable. And everybody gives him grief for it. And he just puts it right on and loves it. And I, I think that's a beautiful example of acting in love. Yeah, absolutely. That was very sweet. So as we jump into the verses, in verse 8 we read, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, I think it was Rabbi Maurice Applebaum in one of our previous episodes who explained the short list of the Noahide laws, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, that Judaism asks for non-Jewish people to follow. I believe it's a list of seven laws. They're all pretty basic. And like, if you are not a terribly cruel person and you're not out there, you know, trying to harm other people, you're Mm -hmm. almost certainly following all of these. And most people wouldn't break them anyway. Mm -hmm. And so this verse kind of sounds like the Christian version of that. Like, this is what we are generally asking of people, regardless of faith. Only the difference is that to actively love others demands a lot more than just avoiding hurting them and avoiding cruelty. Mm -hmm. And so... Our list is probably rather longer, and Paul does not actually go into huge detail right at the second about it, but it, it is a difference. Mm-hmm. That that might have been Rabbi Maurice. I believe it was the same conversation that led to the, so how do you explain communion to small children conversation, which was okay. totally Rabbi Maurice, right? Yes. And then in verse 10, we read, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And the... Methodists have a phrase of do no harm. If you love them, let them fly, let them be free. And I do love the do no harm as like the basis of love that like- I think that's also something they share with the medical community, right? Yes. Yeah. The Hippocratic Oath is- Yeah. The Hippocratic Oath is do no harm. But that as an understanding of like the very basic bar of what it means to love someone is to not cause them harm. And I think there are ways that like the idea of love gets complicated in terms of like church people who are queer phobic and like how they sure. love but like not causing harm is so important yeah yeah don't don't do stuff that causes harm it's a good first step absolutely mm-hmm. and then in verse 11 we read besides this you know what time it is how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers i just translate this as 
take the red pill from the matrix take the red pill go down the rabbit hole as far as it goes and you will wake up from this machine fueled hellscape nightmare so on the one hand yes i absolutely love the matrix movies and they are iconic on the other hand, there is a secondary meaning to red pill and or being a red pillar in the internet community of being horribly misogynistic and like waking up to the fact that society wants you to believe that you're supposed to like care about other people, but actually you don't have to. It's this weird misogynistic libertarian thing that's kind what? of creepy. So, yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. That's particularly, so, okay, here's where that's particularly ironic. Matrix is made by trans women. Yes, no, exactly. But of course, these people don't, you know, believe in trans people because that's apparently a thing that they think is legit. So, yeah, like, I, I love those movies. They're great. But if, if, if you type in red pill on the internet in a search engine, you will get some weird responses. I typed it in insofar as I couldn't remember if it was the red one or the blue one. And so sure. only looked at the top part. Yeah. But, ooh, good to know. Thank you for sharing with me and with <laughs> any of our listeners who also didn't know. So then in verse 12, we read, The night is far gone, the day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So I would be super interested to hear exactly how Paul talked to people who worked the night shift in ancient times about stuff <laughs> like this. <laughs> because even back then, there were jobs that had to be done at night because there are just things that have to be done 24 hours a day. And there are also things that are better done when the streets are mostly empty. And not all of those jobs involved thieving and murdering. I will admit that possibly some of those jobs involved thieving and murdering, but not all of them. And admittedly, when I play video games that mostly take place at night, there is a lot of both of those. For example, the Dishonored series. But again, not all of those jobs involve thieving and murdering, Paul. <laughs> so. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. And then our final reading for this episode is from Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Jesus gives instructions on what to do when two members of the church have a conflict that involves one hurting another. So one of the themes in this passage is the space of God being present in conflict. We didn't touch on this verse, but most people do not realize that the verse where two or three are gathered in my name I am with you, or two or more, whatever, Yeah, comes at the end of this passage. It is about right. God's presence in conflict. And yeah. I was trying to think of examples of it, and the odd couple trope was actually what was my favorite. So you get, like, the original odd couple of Felix and Oscar from the show, The Odd Couple. But you can also get, like, Bert and Ernie are a great example of this, or one of my particular favorites, Grace and Frankie, that <laughs> they butt heads and they have conflict. And frequently from that conflict comes creative new solutions or ideas or new ways of being in relationship to each other, or they both grow as people. And so I just, yeah, yeah really loved that. Also, I just kind of want to watch whatever Lily Tomlin does. on the Right? Like <laughs> Lily Tomlin is amazing and I love her. Yeah. And then in verse 15, we read, If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. 
So I'm reading Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg's book on repentance and repair right now. And it shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone that this process that Jesus is about to outline is based on a Jewish process of bringing about repentance as Hmm. Jesus was Jewish, you know, obviously. (laughs) And also Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. So Mm -hmm. again, not a surprise. And the idea of going alone for the first conversation, as the rabbi explains in her book, is that sometimes people do recognize that they've screwed up and they want to fix things. And if that's the case, there really isn't a reason to bring in anybody else into the situation. You can get Mm -hmm. it taken care of quickly. Uh, For example, in season two, episode 11 of West Wing, The Leadership Breakfast, Sam's whole thing with Congresswoman Cahill would have been a lot simpler if he had just gone to her directly and gotten himself straightened out instead of involving Donna, which wound up involving some of Donna's clothing and it got very complicated <laughs> and none of that had to happen. Like we all know that that happened because Aaron Sorkin wanted to make the episode more entertaining, but in real life, just try straightening it out yourself instead of involving more people. Yeah. Yeah. And just as a note, part of why we did the deep dive that we did was because of this passage, because a lot of churches say that they use this passage as their model for conflict resolution. (laughs) And And then do it badly. And then do it terribly. Or particularly that verse that, yes, there are some situations in which nobody else needs to know if somebody like realizes there's harm. This is not the thing for situations of abuse. Telling someone to go to that person directly, that is not appropriate advice. This This only works if everybody involved is equal in power and stature. Yeah, this is about if people are in equal power dynamics. Status. Status. Yeah, yeah. So then in verse 16, we read, but if you are not listened to, so if the one-on-one doesn't work, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I believe this is the legality part of like, you need to have two or three witnesses for something to be held up in legal court. So like having somebody to witness there, but this also prevents gaslighting because you're no longer relying on your memory to remember so it's harder to be gaslit and it's harder to gaslight because there's at least two other people who are also remembering not that anybody's going to remember perfectly but that it's easier to remember and recall the conversation together yeah and then in verse 17 we read if the member refuses to listen to them tell it to the church and if the offender refuses to listen even to the church let such a one be to you as a gentile and a tax collector now, I am fairly certain that we have actually discussed this passage on the podcast before, and I think we brought this up really when we like did we that then. I feel like we have too, but also, I don't yeah. know. Maybe I'm, we referenced it when talking about that. something else. Yeah. But when they say, treat this person like a Gentile and a tax collector, what they mean is as a neighbor rather than a member of the community, but still treated with respect and kindness. So, for example, you would hope that you'd be treating this person much better than the gang in Avatar The Last Airbender (laughs) treated that poor cabbage merchant who did not deserve that much havoc and chaos in his life and was really just a perfectly good neighbor to them and never did anything wrong to them in the first place. My cabbages! (laughs) yes yes agreed agreed also you don't have to interact with the person right that's part of like treating them as a neighbor not a member of the community you're not required to interact with them yeah really if the cabbage merchant had actually managed to arrange his life so that he was never in the same town as the avatar his life would have been a lot simpler but 
I feel like there has to be a bunch of great fan theories about like him being a secret something. Oh, I'm following sure, yes. them and like trying to. The, 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 I have seen some fan fiction that's pretty amazing, at least. So yeah. yeah. And then in verse eighteen, we read, "Truly, I tell you," Jesus says. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And throwback to the Office of the Keys episode. See, it is for everyone. When we were talking about the Office of the Keys and Bishop Brenda talked about it being the Office of the Keys being for everyone. And the language she used was this verse that she was thinking of. Yeah. So I love that. But also binding love to you would be one way of making sure that you're wearing love as like your armor. Absolutely. So it's not bad. Not bad binding. Not all binding is bad, I guess. Yeah. Ooh! <gasps> but, like, <laughs> for trans people who chest bind, like, this is such good news. Absolutely. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. You're binding your chest on earth, it's going to be bound in heaven in some capacity. This is brilliant, and I love it. Although having some medical knowledge about how to do so safely on earth is very important. Absolutely. Yes. Be careful when you bind. Follow the medical instructions and stuff. Yeah. And now for our most musical segment, thanks to Bishop Brenda Boss. make a Muppets musical time. Absolutely. Okay, who are you casting for Let's Make a Muppets musical this episode? Well, while we were talking about the Romans verse, I was thinking about, you know, Paul really doesn't go into a lot of detail right at this particular point about what does it mean to live with love for others. And so if I was going to pick a Muppet whom, you know, like, I don't know what to do in this situation. What would this Muppet do? And that Muppet can provide me guidance on how to treat others with love. I am kind of torn between Kermit and Fozzie Bear. Like, Fozzie Bear is never going to do harm to a neighbor, right? Like, absolutely mm-hmm. not. On the other hand, like, it wouldn't be harm to a neighbor, but I could totally see him interjecting a joke at a moment that was really not the greatest. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, maybe not, like, maybe not always taking Fozzie Bear's advice on when to insert a joke into the situation. But also, like, Kermit would be very good at how to show love to a neighbor without the jokes, but also he tends to be a little bit less effusive, I guess, in in his showing of love. And so I think sometimes he could learn from Fozzie on that. So, like, somewhere Mm -hmm. in between the two of them, I think, is where I would land if I was asking myself what Muppet could tell me how to respond to the situation. I like it. I like it. Okay. I was struck by Grace and Frankie and was like, (laughs) they would be a great example of, like, addressing conflict within the community. Sure. But you can't have two token humans. So I would definitely, as we have already established, go for Lily Tomlin. I think she would be much more receptive. Yeah. Jane Fonda is great, but she always plays characters that are less receptive. So Lily Tomlin, though, I think would be great at illustrating, like, if Lily Tomlin and Elmo got into conflict, like, I really think that they would Absolutely. do a great job of working through it well. So, yeah, I'm, I'm doing a Lily Tomlin and I Elmo. love that. It's been a while since we cast humans, so 
a token human. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I would love to see that. Also, I think Lily Tomlin would absolutely abide by the... There's a meme that went around the internet a while ago about how the difference between Michael Caine's performance in A Muppet Christmas Carol and Tim Curry's performance in Muppet Treasure Island is that Michael Caine considers the Muppets his fellow actors to be treated with all due respect and dignity. And Tim Curry is essentially treating himself as a Muppet. And <laughs> and I think that Lily Tomlin lands on the treating herself as a Muppet side of those things. Oh, I was I was going to say, I think that she would treat them like with all the seriousness i think she would do both i think she would both uh, yeah, treat herself as she, a muppet land in the and treat them with all the seriousness and respect of a fellow actor <laughs> I, yeah she just doesn't strike me as as serious in general but yeah absolutely but i could see her taking sure Elmo so seriously right like absolutely Partly, I think, because I'm thinking of there's a clip that maybe you sent me of Lily Tomlin learning ASL with some Muppets. Uh, on I don't think that was me, but it sounds okay. interesting. Somebody did. And she was like, sure. learning ASL. I think it was her. Learning Aww. ASL on Sesame Street. And it was the most adorable thing. It cool. was great. It was a great like way to introduce ASL and deafness to little kids who might not have had any experience with people who are deaf. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Our theme music was by Rachel Meyer Lachlan, and our Muppets music was by Brenda Boss. Catch us next time when we'll discuss nerdery connections to the scripture readings for the 16th Sunday after Pentecost with our special guest, Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg. Woohoo! We are really looking forward to that one. <laughs> so excited. Yeah. This podcast has been produced by us, Kay Roloff and Emily Ewing. For more fun, check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Nerds at Church, or contact us at nerdsatchurch at gmail.com. Also, if you like what you've heard, rate us or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you want access to our uncut guest episodes and interviews, live Q&As, and more, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nerdsatchurch. It's cheaper than each of the carts of cabbages that got knocked over in <laughs> Avatar The Last Airbender. <laughs> Although, wow, I can only imagine the inflation rate between those two sets of currencies. Also, let us sure. know on Facebook or Twitter who you would cast for Let's Make a Muppets Musical for this episode. As the ancient Christian said, Pox Bobiscum. Bobiscum.